Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, BladeDisgusting.com's Dead Pixels horror video game podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Monday. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bolt. And today we're chatting about Lone Survivor. No, not the Mark Wahlberg movie. Rather, the survival horror game from Superflat Games, a.k.a. Jasper Byrne, in which the player must navigate a world ravaged by a plague, as well as contending with horrific monsters that may, or may not, be a result of the protagonist's deteriorating mental state. And as it's the game's 10th year anniversary, we figured we would chat about what makes this indie horror title a standout a decade later. And as always, we will be discussing all manner of spoilers. So Neil, this is one of those horror games that, surprise, surprise, I have come late to, but I've been cognizant of it for a while, just in that I remember when it was released, and then I also remember adding it to my Steam catalog, and then remember taking five to six years to get around to actually playing it. So I'm very excited to kind of unpack a game that no matter sort of the indie sensibilities it has or just the way that it looks, it feels very in line with a lot of the horror games actually that you and I have been talking about over the course of the last year. And it feels very reflective of that. Um, so I'm curious for you, what was your sort of initial experience with Lone Survivor? Um, mine was the... PS3 slash Vita version, back when they used to be bundled as the same thing. Mm. Would you believe? And <laughs> <laughs> it's like now, pay £10 to have a slightly better looking version of the same game. It's yep. like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it, as many indie games were at that time, perfect for the Vita. You know, so that, that is where I played it. And yeah, it turned out to be the best port of call of the time for it because that was only really sort of getting engrossed in indie games at that point, you know, very relatively soon. Yeah. Relatively little time since then. So it was, it was the perfect sort of place to have it in that sense, because I had so many older games on the Vita anyway, that sort of it, it evoked, you know, including Silent Hill. Um, and so, yeah, it, it made a great sort of like, bedtime game if you know what I mean like people are like what are you, what do you want but it's like <laughs> honestly it's like, it's like, yeah as I've said before you know if you can go to sleep to the, the menu music of Dawn of the Dead um, firing bullets and screams you, you can rest easy playing a survival horror game <laughs> just before bed as well so yeah that that was my initial experience with it yeah so I played the director's cut version that was on uh pc right and the entire mm -hmm. time i was playing it i was just thinking like this would make for such a fantastic handheld game and i'd yeah. completely forgotten that it was on vita until you'd mentioned it uh before we were just recording and it really does feel like it would be perfect for that and it's kind of exciting that i'm coming to this game late i'm enjoying it and we'll get into that but also that it's sort of getting a second wind around it you know it's been around now for yeah. a decade but it's getting a various remaster and updating on different consoles and things and ports like that. Um, I believe it's also like coming to Switch. And it first and foremost feels like a horror game designed by somebody that has an immaculate sense of design, but also that has a lifelong love of horror in a way yeah. that feels like, yeah, it's wearing a lot of those influences on its sleeve, but it is all in this sort of survival horror cocktail that doesn't feel like, okay, I'm just going to cherry pick this element or this element or this element. It feels like it's taking all those inspirations and it's blending it with 
you know, Jasper's own sensibilities as a game developer, but also as a horror fan and also as somebody that has a background in music. And it made yeah. for a product that, or a game that I was very surprised at just how well every single element of it kind of flows together. And it comes together into an experience that takes those influences and it makes it something that is almost its own in a way that mm. felt very refreshing. It didn't feel like it was overly reliant on any one influence, right? Because I think that when we mention a lot of these things, like we're going to obviously mention Silent Hill, I'm sure there'll be a little Resident Evil in there. There'll definitely be some references to like a Lynchian inspiration. Mm. It doesn't necessarily feel like any specific one of those is stronger than the others, in my opinion. I thought that it took those influences and then it took a lot of the personality and experiences, I'm sure, that Jasper's had and made it into a product and an experience that I was taken aback by and I really enjoyed, given that, you know, there weren't necessarily any variables in it that I was, like, blown away by in the sense I had never experienced these before. But, you know, the more games that you play and the more, especially of, like, being in one genre as much as we are, it's yeah. the type of thing that you start to become more and more appreciative of people and games and developers that take those experiences, take those influences, and they make it into an experience that you almost stop thinking or recognizing those influences until you kind of step away for a minute and then you start thinking about it. It really loses you in a world that feels like it's its own rather than just being like a clone of a couple of horror staples. Yeah. And I think one of the most distinct the things about it in that despite it's a uh, absolute loving for silent hill you know mm-hmm. it's a game that proudly wears that on its sleeve that, that, that this is how much i love silent hill like make a game that takes so much from it and in mood and ideas you know pretty much within a couple of weeks of the last silent hill game you know, yeah downpour and the contrast couldn't be any clearer as much as i think downpour is better than most would rate it it wasn't still wasn't silent hill people wanted and here was this small game not for the first time in this sort of little era that we talked about before you know the beginning of that decade onward you'd get loads of indie games that sort of were influenced by the games that came before and tried to do it in a more minimalist style and here is very much that sort of game and yeah, I think it really helped it in the same way that like City Skylines is like a big game because it came out after the Sim City remake that was an absolute disaster and it just it said, No no, here's the simple version of that and people lapped it up and no one gives a shit about Sim City anymore and that's the game that is still, you know, going strong to this day. So yeah. That's that's what you want from your sort of experience at that time. And it, it did a fantastic job of that. Yeah, when I made a little blurb tweet about uh, the fact that we were covering Lone Survivor on our Twitter page, uh, our friend of the show and uh, recurring guest Aaron Bain had mentioned like when he encounters people that say that they are, you know, lamenting Silent Hill or they yearn for games that are designed in that same sort of ethos or horror sensibilities, he points them in the direction of Lone Survivor. Um, and it, I think that that's a perfect way to put it in that it abides by a lot of those same sensibilities, whether it be atmosphere, mood, approach to creating this kind of just suffocating world that's filled with horrific monsters. And no matter how long you play it, and no matter how many you know little scraps of paper or enemies you encounter or little puzzles in these things, 
you still never fully understand the horror or what is going on behind the scenes and whatnot. And that's a that's a quality of this game that I was surprised at how well it handles that because you definitely get a lot of, you know, ambiguity is nothing new to horror or no. you know, games or film or storytelling in general. And yet so often I encounter mediums that try to use ambiguity and this sort of like mystery or what's going on behind the scenes that they never fully explain, but it almost feels like a cop out half the time, right? It's like, well, let's just make the player feel so overwhelmed in the sense of like the bizarro nature of a world or characters or events. And it never really amounts to a feeling other than what the hell is this or what the hell is that? Whereas, especially in Lone Survivor, you know, being reminiscent of Silent Hill in that regard, it does a really great job of interweaving that sort of ambiguity and the bizarre characters you meet and the beginning to challenge or rather the game challenges the player to really question the reliability of not only the narrator, but the world that's around them and how the environment and this plague and these monsters and these people and the dream-like sense of moving between realities, that makes for something that is really representative of the environments that you're in. And so, you know, you're in this apartment building and the more you explore, you're further going down and down and down to the degree that it almost, for me, rivals that feeling in Silent Hill too, right? Which we talked about in our episode with uh, Matt Jordan in that you get to a certain point in Silent Hill too. And the player has gone so many floors down essentially that you are basically like in hell, right? You just keep going and going and going. And you're like, oh, this building must be infinitely long. You're never going to reach the bottom. <laughs> and I really liked that element of Lone Survivor and the exploring. And we'll get into the survival elements and various uh, traversal of the environment. But I was really taken with the fact that the way in which the building that you're in scales and the environment scales, it becomes more and more dreamlike sort of in your understanding of the area and the geography and what you encounter in a way that I really liked. And it made for an experience that, I mean, I think it took me four, four and a half hours to finish this. And it was the type of game that, you know, for as pixelated and kind of like rudimentary, maybe as some might think the game looks there's a great deal of personality and significance to each of the environments that you explore. Each really crafts its own identity and each really makes for an environment that builds upon the horror of the last without maybe reverting to some of the more tropey sort of horror environments that we're used to. Right. I think one of the things that we always sort of uh, groan about with games like Outlast is that they interpret horror as being like, well, this environment will be scarier if we put, 25 dead bodies into it instead of 15 Mm -hmm. in the last room, that type of sort of baseline horror experience. And I'm more interested in like seeing an environment that evolves in a way that's more significant to the character, but also in sort of reveling in that ambiguity that the world crafts so well for itself. Yeah. It's um, got its own aesthetic down to a T, I think. And it feels like you're viewing some sort of surreal dream video or something uh, helped, you know, by the fact that it has this almost CRT TV style presentation to everything and just how things is just fuzzy enough where you're like, it, you know, you kind of have to squint. So, you know, like back in the day you'd watch something maybe like 
some obscure horror thing late at night and the TV quality obviously doesn't show up everything it should and you're sort of squinting to see certain things and not quite sure about what they are the first time and it really captures that you know quite well and it, it captures that idea of like a nightmare bottled within a screen you know and does it real justice like that and I, I that to me was the most impressive thing about it back uh, even back then and I think it its greatest strength overall is that it knows that it's doing these things and as I said it knows its influences and it doesn't hide from them it doesn't pretend like it's doing something like oh look we're doing this thing that you definitely haven't seen before <laughs> like that it is really much saying no be in the experience like we want you to be comfortable and familiar with it because that's where we get you that's where we can take you into uncomfortable places because you think you know what you're going to get and while you may be right it doesn't mean you're ready for it, it doesn't mean you're going to be happy about that you know you're going to dread those moments where you're like yeah i see where this is going i know what i'm gonna have to do that like that and it plays that to perfection you know how many horror movies have you watched over the years where yeah sure you could pretty much go yeah i I know what's going to happen but it's effective because of the way it's done you know it's like because the same ideas have been done over and over and over again and it just now comes down to a point of how can you execute that idea in your own way effectively and this is very much an example of that where it has been done you know a very tried and trusted set of ideas done in a way that is very uniquely this game's yeah and i think that the juggling of you know a lot of the influence that we've mentioned and we'll come back to those in a moment but also the way in which they balance the narrative elements and the ambiguity and the aesthetic of the world versus Gameplay mechanics that I was surprised, you know, this is again is kind of like why you never judge a game by its pixels and whatnot. Like this is a game that has a great deal of depth in terms of it being a survival horror game and really like having a capital S in survival, I think, in a way I was not expecting, right? And we've talked about the importance of survival games and how horror can often be paired with it so well. And this game I thought was a fantastic example of that. And again, like the depth of the mechanics, I assumed it was going to be something along the lines of you have a flashlight, you have a gun, you have to eat occasionally, and that's the end of it. But there, and again, granted, I'm, I feel like we, I should have put the caveat at the beginning that we're referring to like the director's, our experience with the director's cut moving forwards, because I believe there was a good deal yeah. of content added to that uh, since the post release. But regardless, like taking a lot of the elements that you would find in a standard survival game, which is, you know, eating, sleeping. And if you don't pay attention to light management, which, you know, uh, is definitely an element that is no stranger to horror games. Like you have to worry about your player's sanity and taking those three core real mechanics of survival and incorporating it into a horror experience like this. I thought just, it did a great job at, giving the player an extra facet to exploring this world in a way that gives more significance than just kind of like wandering around aimlessly, right? Even if the player maybe doesn't necessarily know where they're supposed to go next, even though I was surprised also at like how clear cut the game was in terms of like, go explore this area. You should probably head in this direction. Given that one of the issues I had was 
some at certain points the geography became a little difficult to memorize just because of the yeah. way that things can change. You have to deal with the fact that you can see like translucent doors that are in the uh, foreground and the background at times. Like occasionally I became lost in terms of where I was going, but it sort of was like the great equalizer for me in that even if I was going around and not necessarily knowing where to go, I still always had in the back of my head, I have to be on the lookout for food. I have to be on the lookout for batteries. I have to make sure that I'm looking for mirrors and the mirrors work as two-way transportations between various parts of the apartment and your home base, which is your own apartment. Um, and that is one of the things that I thought there were so many different little checklist bullets that I had to keep in mind throughout playing mm. that I never sort of hit a wall in terms of getting overly frustrated in terms of like, what do I do next? I'm just lost. This is boring. It's like you always have these mini milestones that you have to hit in yes. addition to, you know, progressing the exploration and the story. Yeah, and it's funny you say that because it was something that really tickled me this uh, past week with, with uh, finishing up my review for Elden Ring, which is another example of a game that is, you know, relentless, you know, relentlessly oppressive in its atmosphere, but and uh, its challenge maybe even, but constantly gives you little micro goals that organically, you know, and it works for it because you want to just give it a little more you just want to do a little more and see what comes out of that and yeah Lone Survivor really does do that on a different level obviously but it really does just keep you busy in the same way and you know I think in terms of the story itself and what's being told it makes sense you know it really does sort of feel logical that that's the way it would be structured, you know, as well. And I think, again, it's going to this idea of what's expected and what seems predictable and uh, very workmanlike is still made into something that feels very effective just because of the way it, it fits into the story they're telling. Yeah, it makes for an interesting contrast between the you know, the surreal dreamlike quality of the world and trying to decipher like, am I awake? Am I asleep? Am I alive? Yeah. Am I dead? What is my real reality? But then you almost have those sort of baseline survival elements to ground you in a way that you're like, okay, well, I have to worry about eating. I have to worry about, you know, brewing coffee at times, or if I'm out of uh, certain materials or items, like, okay, I have to start taking these mysterious pills that send me further down the rabbit hole but when I briefly come out of the rabbit hole, I have more batteries or more ammo or I'm fully healed in these things. And the relationship between sleep and this bizarro world element to this game, I really, really liked. And I liked that each time that you do this and, you know, for uh, people that haven't played the game, like periodically you have access to these pills that, you know, they will give you more ammo, more batteries, or they'll heal you or they'll help you uh go right to sleep. Yeah. But each time that you do this, you know, granted there are, I think now six or seven different endings for the game that are all based on like decisions you make, how many pills you take, how often you kill something, are you more stealth focused and yeah. sneaking past enemies and whatnot. But I was appreciative of the fact that no matter what decision I took, every single time I like took another pill and it didn't matter which one, I was given a just a little bit more of, story and that story yeah. or 
maybe narrative interaction is probably a better way to say it because I don't feel that I necessarily like had a better grasp on what was happening through these Mm. interactions. But in this sort of fugue dream state, you're interacting with a different, very Lynchian figurehead that it's like nothing about them makes sense. And what they're saying doesn't make sense, but it's just intriguing enough that it gives you a little more context for maybe Jasper's sensibilities and storytelling or the vibe or the aesthetic that he's going for in a way that I found rewarding. Um, so in that regard, I wasn't necessarily super worried about like what ending I got just because I was playing yeah. it as I was going to play it and what ending I see is what I get. But I was just appreciative that no matter the decision I made, I didn't feel like I was necessarily missing out on something. I was still getting something, a little nugget of weirdness, even if it doesn't further flesh out my understanding I still get some enjoyment out of that, of just the the surreal nature of it, but also like a chuckle out of that surreal nature at times, right? But also I'm getting a supply out of it or I'm getting some type of, it's facilitating a need from a gameplay perspective, which I really, really yes. appreciate as well. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely, yes. I think also the element of the game that was sound was the option for players to either go the combat route or the stealth route in a way that both feel very feasible. And that's something that, you know, survival horror, obviously you're always maintaining, okay, I have to have this many resources or I need to save this many bullets for this next section. And often I find that sometimes survival horror games can be rather restrictive to the degree that it's not actually all that viable to be resourceful or to completely avoid combat as it were lone survivor. And granted I played on, you know, whatever the normal difficulty is. I didn't play on the hardcore difficulty, but I felt that there were at least enough options that both were very viable for me. Yeah. It's um, reading through, um, just to sort of point out, Aaron has also got an interview with Jasper Byrne coming out. First part is coming out the same day we'll have released this podcast, so you'll be able to sort of reference this. But um, Jasper Byrne was talking about how he was playing Dark Souls, you know, at the time, just before this game, he was making this game, and how Demon Souls as well. Uh, he said that really infected the difficulty level of Lone Survivor and uh, how he approached the game. And yeah, I, I like that. I like that he's open and honest to how he wanted to add that as part of the challenge, you know, to without it. But it didn't go how many developers ended up going with that sort of Dark Souls idea of like, it's hard, so that's why it's good sort of thing. It's more a case of like, no, it's the getting past the adversity in any way, shape or form is the challenge is what makes it um, such an appealing prospect, which when I think about it, going back to what I say about Elden Ring, that that key element is there in most from software games that you can just sort of get this sort of constant sort of reward in a way. If you do the right things, if you can't do this, you can go do that. Eventually, you might run out if you don't have uh, the resources you know, to to hand to deal with the problem you're facing. But here, it's streamlined somewhat, and I like that. Um, I think he also pointed out that um, you know he wanted the main character to be 
very normal in the case of, of course he can't handle a gun expertly of course he's not going to be like some great great traversal or combat or anything like that he's just a guy you know and uh, we see that said a lot about um characters in horror games and so often the uh, solution is to make that person helpless in some way you know and like oh well, they can't have a weapon then or like that it's like no no give someone who's a complete rookie <laughs> with this sort of stuff a weapon you know right. and put them into a weird ass situation it you know i think we discussed this with um resident evil village while it's um you know a bit more <laughs> over the top in how it does it part of the appeal to me of that game is that ethan winters is every man right. you know i mean he's extraordinary for every reason he shouldn't be you know is which is that he is ordinary and it makes it special. I mean, there, you know, he is just, it's a ridiculous level of things. But here, by being closer to what you or I would be like in these situations, it feels more unnerving to get into those situations. And it encourages you to play certain ways if you feel like you're not comfortable with it. And that's one of the best things is that flexibility that you can just sort of go, well, I could sneak past this bit, I could, you know, and you'll sort of talk through, like, you don't have to just shoot them in the head and wait for them to come close, you can hit them in the knees and take them down that way, and little things like that, there's sort of ways to, hints, if you will, as what you should or shouldn't do to um, play the way you're going to play it, and I like that about it, it it really, it's a really subtly designed way of doing difficulty, which you know for you know such a small studio, it's you know it's quite great that it got done that way. Yeah, that viability in terms of how you can approach combat, and the fact that no matter really how long you play the game for, how far you progress into mm. the game, you still never really feel entirely comfortable in combat. At least I didn't. Right? It's this thing where yeah. each of the monsters take a significant amount of bullets to the degree that if you aren't utilizing the weak points, that can become disastrous at a certain point, right? Whether it's you managing your own health or just the simple fact that like you begin counting every single bullet and you become more and more likely to take that pill and go to the dream world and get a new mag, but that has its own effect later on. And whether it's, you know, resulting in a lack of sleep or dwindling your mental capacity or these different things, I think that there's a real balance in that. And sometimes, you know, when you're talking about survival horror from an indie studio, there can be, I don't know, the world themselves of some of these types of games can obviously, the lens can shift from that to the monsters that are in it. And in this game, I believe there's only three monsters that you encounter, right? It's the skinny shamblers. It's the, the thicker blobs that kind of have a second life to them. And then there's the final boss at the very end. Mm. And it's the type of thing where, I appreciate that not all of the horror elements are attuned to the monsters because the monsters that are there, as few as they are, are never not a challenge and they're never not presented in a way that the player can't not think about them in a way that can't be, or rather maybe their approach to combat can never be haphazard, haphazardly planned, right? You have to have a clear-cut plan. You have to be on top of item management. And at the same time, you have to be cognizant of the fact that is this the encounter where I choose to use my firearm or if I'm going to use my flare to immobilize them? Or 
am I going to bite the bullet and tr- sneak by them and put down a piece of rotting flesh as a lure and then hide and then wait till they shuffle past and then kind of like make a beeline for the door. And in that regard, I was really appreciative of the fact that it tapped into a, the, you know, the survival instinct that I hadn't had since like early Resident Evil games in that yeah. I have to really judge, like, I can't trust that if I blow through these two guys, there won't be three guys in the next room that I have to kill. So I need to think of like a smart way to pass this next encounter. Yeah. And a big part of that is by replicating a trick of that classic survival horror experience, which is having a very limited UI, you know, and making, which gives you that false sense of security where you don't know, you know, you know roughly how many bullets you have or what supplies you might have. But in the heat of the moment, you could go through all those and then, you know, engrossed in whatever you're doing, get to the next thing and think, oh shit, like that, I don't have what I need here. And, you know, that that is the essence of what made survival horror like that work really mm. well. And uh, I, I thought that was, a again, a callback that really felt comfortable within this without feeling, you know, overtly like they were trying to do that kind of game. It was just, it felt perfect for this where it's like, it's not a guy who's going to be like, yeah, I've got this many bullets, I've got this many things, and like I've got laser focused on that. It's you know, he's just, you know, like anyone else, he would forget that he might have X amount of bullets or this amount of situation uh, items for a situation. So yeah, it was good. Yeah, and I loved still though, like the fact that there's no UI for using or there's no HUD rather for your current ammo count, which induced mm. many. Uh, pants shitting moments where I like was ready to <laughs> pop a guy that got right close to me or I was going to shoot him in the knees or in the head. And then my gun just clicks and I'm just dry firing. Like there's plenty of instances like that, that I think it's little moments, but it made me very quickly realize that it is entirely on me if I die. Right. Because granted, unless yeah. you get sort of like bookended by enemies, which inevitably is always the player's fault. Right. Because the skinny shamblers, which are the most common enemies, they either just shamble towards you or they jump on the ceiling and they kind of do this, the reverse uh, crab walk on the ceiling towards you. Yeah. <laughs> and you have a way to get them down, right? Which is you aim up and you shoot them once and they fall down. But again, if the player dies generally, and this is, I think, a big key to a lot of survival horror games, and I think it's an indication of a well-made survival horror game or a well-made horror game in general, is that the... When the player dies, generally, it is entirely their fault uh, in the way that yeah. it's like, it's not in this type of game. It's not that the game is like too hard or it's unfair or something. It's like, no, it's you didn't properly assess a situation or you were careless mm. in either item management or enemy movement management, right? Because you have yeah. the ability to stop them from getting behind you. But if you're not quick enough or you're not realizing like, oh, there's actually two guys or there's one here and then there's a, th- a second one down the hall and he's on the ceiling already. It it really is on the player to manage their yeah. situations as best they can. And generally you have the option to retreat. Um, and this was one yeah. thing I was unsure of in that when you leave, obviously going room to room, if you kill an enemy and you come back, they don't respawn. But I was unsure if like you deal damage to an enemy and then leave a room 
and then you return to that room, does it take the same amount of bullets to kill them? Or does that damage that you did carry over? That was one thing I was unclear of just because, you know, you get to a certain point and you're like, well, I shot him twice. When I re-enter now, do I need another two bullets on top of the few I yeah. already have? Yeah, it's that, that's that sort of unsure nature of... Because, you know, games inherently have given you that mistrust over the years where, you know, it's like you, some games you like, you can sort of hit an enemy a few times, run off, come back, run off, come back, and just whittle the way that the health that way. Others, you know, they pretty much just all the way back to normal health and you're basically chipping away and losing all your stuff for nothing, you know? And yeah, I like that again. I, while maybe not intentional, it does feel like that sort of mistrust in the nature of it, where you are like, am I wasting a bullet doing this? Have they healed significantly? And because, you know, it's such a straightforward game that doesn't really go out of its way to explain too much. It, it, um, it really does, give you that sort of unease of like well what's going to happen if this happens and how am I going to go about it and yeah it that again is a very effective tool in any sort of horror story is that the stuff you don't know you know which can take two maybe three times of playing a game like that is so effective in making you feel uncomfortable and unnerved by the situation you're in yeah. And again, like I keep coming back to the the pill system in this mm. game and that you can keep taking these pills. And I'm I'm somebody that is very upfront and being like, I'm not necessarily looking to challenge myself or I don't get a sense of pride out of like finishing a game a certain way or like being having a hardcore mindset and approaching something. I'm very okay with being that person that's like, well, I need a bit of help here. I'm gonna do in this regard, take this pill, and it's gonna give me some type of benefit. But then it's obviously going to have some sort of negative consequence yeah. attributed to it. That is an element that I think shows a developer that is willing to have a level of accessibility in their game that you don't like, I don't know the way to exactly put this, but like you don't have to put that on the box as it were in terms of being like, oh, well, here's a cheat mode for you or something like the introduction <laughs> of that feels very organic to the world and the sensibility. And, you know, it helps that the world's set in this plague setting with a mysterious disease that's not explained. And then, you know, it's very interesting actually playing this game uh, during the COVID mm. pandemic. And it being this type of thing is like, well, and this further feeds into um, the reliability of the narrator. It's the type of thing where you're like, well, are all of the overt monsters a result of this person living through this pandemic and this disease mm. that we don't know much about? Or is this a result of the pandemic and the disease that is creating these monsters? And the idea that there is like various types of medication, you know, as somebody that has to keep getting these, these shots every couple of months, the idea that like you're not going to be taking these medications that are supposed to help with what's ailing you at certain points. Yeah. Like it's very interesting. And obviously being in the COVID times is, uh, has shaped maybe what my initial view of some of these things might've been. But at the same time, I really am appreciative of the fact that this lending hand as it were, or this sort of like helping hand of these pills that give the player what they want. So that way you don't end up like me and get frustrated where it's like, okay, I need more bullets. I've yeah. exhausted the environment for the bullets, but 
I essentially have an everlasting supply of bullets if I want to keep taking these pills and whatnot. And there is maybe a, I don't know that a detriment is a way to put this, but more or less there is an effect on the final outcome of the experience based on that. But at the end of the day, for me, that doesn't really matter because it's not hindering my progress, which is why I think somebody like me that isn't necessarily like the most hardcore of mindsets when playing games, like if I hit that wall, I might be reluctant sometimes to extend a current playthrough or take time off from like playing it and come back to it. And that forward mobility through a game that at its core is like very short. It's a, it's less than five hours generally at the same time though. Like it really progressed me in a way that made me excited to return to obstacles or made me excited whenever I would hit a wall to be like, well, I'm really interested what is past this point and I have the cure for this basically I just have to yeah. go back to my apartment and pop a pill and jump in bed and then I'll inevitably have the solution to that problem. I don't know. For me, with a survival horror game that presents as being hardcore, that is hardcore at times, it's nice to have a lifeline that is intrinsic yes. to the world and fits in that. It doesn't feel like I have to get a notification that says, hey, you've died five times at this. Would you like <laughs> another bullet or another battery type thing? Like. It just mm. feels very natural, and that I was very appreciative of. Well, you know, it's something we um, brought up when talking about Amnesia Rebirth, where, you know, it was a game designed from the ground up with the idea that failure isn't necessarily the consequence you think it should be, but it has consequences. You know, it's like you, you it, it'll help you and put you out of harm's way if you keep messing up, but it has an impact on how the game eventually plays out. So, you know, the challenge is all on you. If you you experience it the way you want to, and that's a really smart tool for something that is here, very grounded in being like, you know, Joe, every man, you know, in any sort of situation is that it reflects back to you because you can then freely play it how you want to play it. So if you feel you need that, you're not really getting punished for it, but you're seeing how the story plays out based on what you're doing um, on an, un- not an unconscious level, but on like a personal level, not the- outside of the story, if you will. And so the character becomes more of an avatar for you in that respect without, you know, having, you know, any arbitrary choice systems and things like that. It's those kind of choices. And, Again, like we said, that is something that was so great about Amnesia Rebirth is that you felt like you were having an impact on the game in a really subtle way that felt so smart at the end of it that you were like, oh, wow, yeah, I got to play that the way I wanted to play it. I didn't purposely go out of my way to try and do this a certain way because the game was suggesting, oh, this might be the bad way or this might be the good way. It just naturally comes up, and you—that's the way it goes. And this is probably the prototype of that, if you, if you will. And it, it's a fascinating way to go about difficulty in games, and have it affect the narrative in some way or another. And you know, I'm I'm very particular about that. that I think with games like this, when I'm thinking, well, the way I did it is then my canon ending, or the way I should do it. I don't know if I want to see any of our endings for that. And that's why that's the best use of multiple endings in my eyes is when you have it be 
well, this is where you like to play. So this is the natural conclusion for that kind of way. Yeah. And yeah, it, it works brilliantly. Yeah. Without getting too far ahead of myself in terms of like chatting about the endings that we got, but it yeah. is the type of thing where I found a certain, I had my ending and then like you had said, it was so in line. If that ending is representative of my play style, that is the ending that I want to associate with this experience because anything else, you know, if I choose to read about it, I'll be like, well, I don't necessarily know that if that ending would have felt representative of how I conducted myself in this, which is an element that I was very surprised by because, you know, before I never really like look into what is going to influence a specific ending other than what the game itself offers up. In this game, it is very ambiguous in terms of yeah. like what your decision making will ultimately do or result of in the ending. And, you know, obviously, if you want to read into it, you'll find out a guide that leads you in one way or the other. But I'm not interested in doing that. So when I got this ending, I was almost it felt so right in terms of what it displayed that without even looking into what I did, other than, you know, my own obvious recollection of decision making was so reflective of my actions and the play style that I'd had that it was it kind of blew me away in terms of just how fitting the ending felt based off of what I was doing. And yet it's not overtly saying like, well, yeah, you did this because of the way that you played or anything like that. It feels just, again, very intrinsic to an outcome of how I conducted my character in this game in a way that I was kind of blown away by in a regard. Because again, we're talking about this ambiguity and the fact that you're going to have more questions ever than answers with this game, probably no matter how many times you play it, to be honest. But it all feels so well developed and understood in a way that it comes together. And that comes back to discussing the handling of these influences that it wears on its sleeve and that they all are just blended in a way that they feel like natural progressions of one another. It doesn't necessarily ever feel like, well, we're doing a Silent Hill impression for this chapter because... That might be kind of cool. And then we'll do a little resi over here and then we'll do this and that to round us out. It all feels just so interwoven into the identity and the vision for this game in a way that, again, it really speaks to the idea that like you never judge a game by its pixels or you never judge the idea of what you associate certain games with, whether it be like the team size, the scale of a game or the way that it looks, that there is a a strong depth sometimes to games like this that are just so well defined in the developer's mindset when they're developing it. And then it comes out obviously as well as it does here. Um, I, I wanted to talk just a little bit more about sort of just the surreal world of Lone Survivor because it's a game that kind of begins very uh, humorously in terms of like your introduction to the dream world basically is like you're walking on a stage and then you come to a room and there's a guy in the corner with a box on his head and then there's a table with a cup of espresso on it and you're kind of like interacting with the guy in the corner and it's like, yeah, it's a guy with a box on his head. And it's very matter of fact and it never goes into any more depth than that. And then you drink the espresso and it kind of just triggers your dream world or the scent or the uh, the shift between a dream world and the real world. And that's kind of like the introduction to the game in a way that I really liked because it was just so unexpected and so bizarre and so shocking. But the further you progress into the game, it feels in line with the world that you're continuing to explore. It's not necessarily like done just to be 
shocking and then not be representative of the rest of the experience. Yeah. So talking of that, um, there was a quote I wanted to bring up actually in the first part of Aaron's uh, interview with Jasper when he was talking about the dreams and dream logic and how much they play a part in the narrative. Uh, But uh, Jasper Byrne tried really hard to sort of keep things grounded despite that. Um, And he said, it's like, it always comes from what you want to say. Uh, What I'm trying to do is present things with feeling rather than exposition. Uh, That comes from a combination of the sound and the art and the dialogue and the timing. Sometimes it's almost like what's said is not important, but it is important in the timing and the rhythm of the scene. And that sort of explanation sort of really connected with how I felt about the game, you know, in that sense, because it does. It's like as ambiguous as it can be and as uh, swimmy as things can get, there is some sense to it you you gain something from uh, some kind of understanding from things just by how the i think i'd seen it written before or said before that the gaps in dialogue are unnatural but they are purposeful you know like there's real heavy pause between a pregnant pause between so many lines and it's to make you sit there and wait a minute and just go think about what they're saying. Don't just dismiss the line at a hand. Think about it like that, and it leaves you sort of having that line swirling in your head a little, rather than just sort of go next line, next line, next line. And yeah, that that in itself was again a really smart way of doing things, and I I found that quite fascinating that 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 was the approach. That's a great way to uh, describe the dialogue, right? In that it is bizarre and it is surreal and you don't fully ever grasp it in the grand scheme of things, but nothing ever feels like it's done just to be like, pull the rug out from under you. Like, what the hell is this all about? Like, everything feels like it is explaining something something to you clear as day and yet you still don't understand the meaning behind it, but you can see how it's being informed by what is happening or just these interactions. And I think about those pill dream sequences where there's one where you're like on a stage and you're next to the man in blue and he's saying these things that you almost feel like you're coming into the middle of a conversation, but exactly Mm. what is being said is purposeful. It's informed and it's reflective of your character and what you've done. And same with like the ones where you're on the, uh, the hilltop and, or the mountaintop or whatever, and you come to the guy that has the box on his head and he's talking about this identity and why he is wearing a box on his head, why he's hiding his face. And even if the player themselves is not necessarily like, or the character themselves is not really having a struggle with their identity in the game or anything like that, you still understand almost where the man with the box on his head is coming from because you yourself are masked the entire game. Part of you yeah. is covered. And also you're doing that to hide yourself or to protect yourself from the world around you, you know, for two very different reasons in the end of the day, but it, it feels informed by something and nothing. It feels like it is simply done for the, the sake of shock value, which very often I think can be a crutch that some mm. games or movies for that matter, or even horror literature for that matter, rely on. And that being like, it, we're just going to do this to be shocking. 
And there's parts yeah. to Lone Survivor that feel shocking or that feel surprising. But it all feels like it's being done for the sake of something greater than your understanding yes. of that thing, which I think is really key. And that's something that, you know, again, we keep talking about the fact that this game doesn't necessarily revolutionize or introduce anything that you haven't experienced before or similar to something you've experienced before. But yeah. it all feels so purposeful in what it's doing that it never feels, you know, for lack of a better phrase, like swimmy in logic and what it's trying to achieve. You, no. Your understanding doesn't always have to be tenfold, but at the end of the day, like, it feels like it is being informed by something, a higher power, if you will, that you're trying to understand and you want to understand, but there is a goal behind that. And that is a big deal, I think, in terms of an indie horror game that has so many of these influences, that has this sort of vague ambiguity behind the scenes of what is actually happening, what is real, what is not. But it never feels like it's anything as an afterthought. It never feels like, well, no. we'll let them just be confused and they can revel in that. It always feels like you're working towards something in a meaningful way, even if you don't understand that at the time. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. There is absolute purpose between you know between every line and while it doesn't have to be clear and I, you know i've seen people say that it's like even people who love the game say i don't have to understand everything because i understand enough about what's going on to take away my own ideas of what this should be and it not just be like a my imagination will carry me to the logical conclusion sort of thing but connecting the dots of what you have from what the game has told you or not told you and making your own assumptions from there in a more intelligent manner you know it isn't just thrown together like well it may be all these things you know as you were saying it, it takes that the, the depth to what you want out of the game is there even if it doesn't give you the satisfying conclusion to your summarization of what's going on it's there yeah you have the details just but you're left grasping at, at something you can't quite achieve which i think is a very deliberate choice yeah i think that something that you just said like i don't have to understand understanding is not really important because it's making no. me feel a certain way is really like the most masterful comment that i think you could attribute to ambiguous storytelling like this and mm -hmm. it's something that pops up periodically throughout the game right again nothing is ever fully explained and yet your interactions are always informed by or they're made memorable i suppose by like an emotion rather than yes necessarily a specific thing that's said to you and one of the recurring elements of the story is like this girl in blue in the blue dress that keeps popping up and how she seems familiar but you never necessarily understand who she fully is or at least you know in my experience with the game i never fully understood who she was or never have a moment that moment of clarity where it's like oh it's heavily implied like oh this was a romantic relationship but you never have that overtly told or spelled out or this or that and it, yet it doesn't matter because the moments with the girl that are in the blue dress are so evocative of some of the moments in the game that have the most emotion behind them right and i think a big component of that is not only the way those scenes are framed but also the use of music in the game and you know jasper was the uh composer for i assume all the music in the game i know he had a heavy hand in it i don't know if yeah he was solely um, responsible but uh 
Uh, yeah, I was um, just to bring up another anecdote from that interview. He um, points out that you know he at the time he didn't really think much of what he was doing. He was like he, he didn't have many instruments to hand. He had what he had while he was in Vietnam at the time, and he made it five minutes a time. Made a tune, blah blah blah, and he didn't really think about it. And it's only later that he felt that he made something important that connected with what he was making which just goes to show it's like again what we're saying about this idea that you go into something with i have all the ideas i know exactly what i want to do and i know how this has got to play out and i've got the structure down to a t if you know ambiguity properly it doesn't mean that you don't have an idea about what you're doing it's like you you feel it and it goes back into what i was saying before about how he said he he's going for feeling over exposition and the music adds to that you know i mean he's a musician by nature you know so that's you know that was his other career that's the career that's paid the bills over the years uh between projects so yeah it comes naturally and sometimes you don't even know you're making something that works for something because you're just fiddling around and hoping that it does. And it just turns out that you're in the right mindset to sort of reflect what you're doing. And I think that's pretty much what's happened here. Yeah. And I think that the game's use of music is so indicative of somebody that fully understands music. You know, there are plenty of fantastic games that have music that you can sort of notice when somebody that is, themselves directing a game and not necessarily the most musically inclined, I think that you notice a certain disconnect between the implementation of music and when music is most memorable. Whereas in this game, there's that obviously the spooky audio that goes with it. That's very atmospheric that matches each of the environments that you're in. And yet the moments that stand out to me the most are when the music changes. And I I suppose for lack of a better phrase, like it goes from being atmospheric to being emotionally tied to what is happening. And, you know, one instance is when you, at least for me, I initially thought like, oh, I had finished the game and you have this sort of like hilltop moment with the girl in the blue dress and having a conversation and trying to understand why she's meaningful or memorable to you. And the track changes and it's something that's a little more upbeat, but still melancholic in a way that is so in line with the emotion of that scene, the charge of that scene. And yet it's, uplifting in a way that the rest of the soundtrack up until that moment has not been. And that to me speaks to the fact that not only is a director cognizant of the storytelling that they're doing, but also the key moments in this narrative when music is going to do more and say more than any script that they could have or any line of text, because I don't remember the text from the scene. I remember the music and the way that I felt and the way that it was so in line with where those characters were at or where it dabbles in this sort of gray area between this is a woman that I should have a great admiration for, whether it be romantic or otherwise, but it still captures that essence of not knowing why. And that's something that is, I think that, I don't know, it just speaks to the fact that like you can have these complex emotions and feelings in games no matter what they look like or the scope or the budget or these things that I keep coming back to in a moment that doesn't last for more than probably like 90 seconds or something like that. And it's a moment that stands out amongst my five hours or so with the game as a whole. And that is a very rare thing, I think, for games of this scale or games in general. I mean, 
that is the biggest yeah. indication of just how successful this game is at what it set out to do in that you have a little moment like that what seems like a little moment and it sticks with you in a way that you can't really like scrape it out of the back of your skull. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it works again, especially just because of everything that you've put into it up to until that point, you know, it doesn't work in isolation. You have to have that push to that moment. And while in most plot senses, that would be more obvious and more like, you know, oh, exposition takes you to point X and and that's why you're connecting with this ending sort of thing. It's more a case of like, no, again, going back to this, it's feelings. It's the feelings that you've had during your time with Lone Survivor that push you to this emotional response in the ending. I would liken it to, you know, I mean, well, actually, what came after this that, really sort of connected with me in the same way was uh, Lars von Trier's Melancholia, which in its final scene and final seconds was so impactful. Yeah. And just brought out all the emotion of everything it had built to, you know, it's like, you've got to think of uh, in both cases here that everything that goes towards that ending is like seasonings uh, going into the main meal. And then, you're presented it in front of you and you take a bite and oof, there it is, everything all swirling away at once in your mouth and you're getting these new fresh sensations out of it and it moves you in a way that you, you didn't expect it to and that is exactly what Lone Survivor does in those moments. I mean, it's... So, you know, I, I, I think it doesn't matter what ending you get in that regard. Yeah, I mean, some require repeat playthroughs in any way, but of the ordinary endings, if you will, you know, as we said before, they work because they mirror your experience perfectly. And they, despite being like vague parameters of what that is, you know, it still works and you get exactly the experience you should have. You know, it works more like a film in that regard because it takes into account the journey that's come before, no matter what your journey was. And yeah, it, it's just uh, ridiculously good in, in how well that works out in the end. Yeah. And, you know, it's the type of thing where coming to the game myself a decade later, none of those elements felt dated in a way that, you know, playing so many horror games now so frequently and from various periods and whatnot. Occasionally I play games that you come to it and you're like, yeah, my experience with that was fine, but it, it just, it feels reminiscent reminiscent of an older age or a period that is coming on in game development. And you can still appreciate it and whatnot, but for me, it doesn't necessarily always churn out the emotions. I would assume the developers had in mind sometimes and that, you know, it, occasionally happens there can still be fine games and experiences but i feel like oh well this didn't carry over to the modern period i'm playing it at for this or that reasoning and in this game for this to be a decade later and overall i can't imagine anything that's been added to the director's cut was something that was not key to the design philosophy of the original game right there's additional content sure but at the end of the day it feels like there's so much groundwork again and fully realizing the atmosphere, 
the oppressive mood and these interactions with various characters that are so fundamentally tied to one another, even if you'll never understand the reasoning why. And, you know, of course, the score, which I have been listening to all week, it's the type of thing that it makes for an experience that without, you know, getting too, uh, too hoity-toity, like it, it transcends <laughs> time in a way that I found to be, like, sh- frankly, shocking. And yeah. it made for an experience that while I'm not necessarily going to go back and try to play all the endings, that's not my sensibilities as somebody that plays games and whatnot. It still makes me appreciative of the fact that it's a world that's so finely defined by its uh, developers and whatnot. And yet there are these multiple avenues that the player can find themselves in. And I'm never going to experience all of them kind of for the reasons that you had detailed earlier, but I'm still appreciative of the fact that you can have an experience that has these milestones. And even if we all end up at different places, we're all experiencing the major beats of this game in a way that we can all revel in together or celebrate together, or, you know, in some instances maybe get a little teary eyed together, but it's a game that does a fantastic job. I think of balancing the horror, the survival and being this very surreal and yet emotionally charged experience that, you know, 10 years later, I find holds up incredibly well. Yeah, it really does. And from what I gather, you know, by going for the different endings, you do get a clearer picture of what's going on, you know, and, you know, whilst still not like spoiling what the overall idea that you could sort of bring something of your own to it. And I like that. I like that there is no clear cut one size fits all answer. No matter how you play the game, it's just interpret it. You know, it's a Rashomon thing. You know, it's like you have the different viewpoints, uh, you know, each time and like, oh, well, that's not how I saw it thing. And it goes into that way. You could take any number of perspectives on what's happening and you could be right. Because it's yours and yours alone. And that's a very special thing for anything to do, you know, alone a, a game of this size you know, to, to do. And it just makes it feel very personal, even though it's not your personal. Yeah. And I think it's uh, as somebody that just got around to playing it and experiencing and really enjoying it. It's exciting that now it sounds like there is a future for Lone Survivor, right? There's a remaster yeah. coming. And there's additional content coming. And it's yeah. the type of thing where, I don't know, it's, I find that when I'm, typically when I'm coming to a game, its life has already outlived itself, right? And it is very much this thing that's stuck in time. And that experience is the experience. And yet to come to something that is a decade old, getting to experience it and really enjoying it and having new content, whether it be updated visuals or story content, I believe there's an entire like new chapter coming too. It's the type of thing yeah, that is incredibly um, exciting. Yeah. It's a uh, lone warrior. Yes. It's the whole new thing, which is, uh, as Jasper Burns put it himself, is that uh, it is, you know, more directly influenced by the events of the last couple of years and, It'd be more action focused as well. So, you know, I think he decided part way through making it that, you know, this isn't the same kind of game. So it has to be something kind of different. So that's good. And yeah, he's still making the secret project he's been making for a long time. So, 
Yeah, it, it's interesting. And we've discussed on this uh, podcast before about indie developers coming back to do things that are fresh and exciting, you know, from what they originally did when they've already broken ground in the horror space, especially uh, Frictional being one of the ones we've mentioned already today. And that in itself, to me, is very cool to to think about though, what could come next what could be the next cool experience out of that and kind of sad too because the indie craze of that time has dried up uh, as we i lamented when we were talking about amnesia rebirth that it came out at the wrong time completely because you know new consoles were coming out and you know it's all about bigger better greater and all these great advancements in what's going on in games and it got lost uh, in the shuffle and it wasn't the only one you know it's the same for pretty much every big indie game from that like four or five year period at the beginning of the last decade anytime there's a sequel or a new game it, it doesn't get the same traction because it's not new and exciting and it's not getting the organic sort of uh, push that those games got, yeah, which is unfortunate. But, um, I, you know, I like to think that people like us and other people out there will keep the torch alive for, for things like that and make sure that they get the, the time and respect they need. You can only hope, you know, the additional content and uh, versions coming hopefully will be that yeah. second wind and, you know, a decade later... How many games can say that that have you know been formed around an original game that had such a small team and had such a small scope, and now getting to yeah. see them hopefully get that second wind and get fanfare and introduce a whole new crop of fans of this game? I mean, it's the type of thing that you know, if my experience with it was so positive, I can only hope that you know getting more and getting something that's new will you know generate that kind of fandom. But you know, at least for me, uh, Jasper Byrne, you as well have uh for in my case i suppose it's a new fan and for you it's uh, a fan that is excited to you know delve into more of this world and more of his sensibilities as a uh, developer but yeah lone survivor was a, a very very welcome surprise and a game that taps into so many classical elements of the things that we love about survival horror yet is entirely its own and uh it was yeah. a joy to dive into this even if i was uh very, very late to the party, which seems to be a recurring theme <laughs> on my part. But uh, Neil, as always, it's a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Yeah, and back at you. And just to point out, as I said, uh, Aaron has an interview with Jasper and going off bloody disgusting this week. Uh, two parts. The first part talking about the past, you know, and about this game. And the second part talking about the future, you know, the new version of future projects and stuff like that so they will both be going up this week as well at about the same time this is coming out so please do check that out if you want to do any further reading on this it's a, yeah he had a good long chat with jasper about it terrific so as always you guys can find that on bladedisgusting.com and i will be sure to retweet that on our safe room page at safe room pod thank you for listening to another episode of safe room Please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform. And for updates on the show, follow us on Twitter at SafeRoomPod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.
Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. 